Open your scriptures to Acts 20, where Jonathan just read. And this is not my farewell sermon, um, but it was Paul's farewell address to the Ephesian church. Here's why I chose this text this morning. Today, an announcement will be made about a pastoral candidate after the Coffee Connect time during a combined equipping elective, a candidate and a unique opportunity that God has put before us as a church. And it's a big day for us, especially for a church who has only had two lead pastors in nearly 40 years. When we talk about a candidate or a lead pastor or a vision for Christ's church and what we are looking for, it helps to ask for me, and I do this often, whether it's with ministry philosophy or what is the church and what should the church be doing or what is an overseer, elder pastor, what What is it that we are evaluating when we are given a name and an opportunity? So I would say this, to remove us from our particular cultural scenario, what is a proper ministry description for a pastor, overseer, elder in the desolate and oppressive country of Bhutan? What would you expect a lead pastor to do in Nepal, in the country you just saw? What would be non-negotiable? I mean, I would hope you would have a list that looks something biblical in what you would expect a lead pastor there to do. When you see the darkness and you hear those guttural grunts that sound satanic. Or in southern Sudan where in order to be accepted into the village, they had to cut a young calf's neck, and while the blood was spilling on the ground, we had to jump over it, both feet in the air, and land on the other side. What would you expect a lead pastor in southern Sudan to focus on? Certainly we want him to be a man of character, the qualifications in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1. We want him to be holy. We want him to be sound doctrinally. But what do you want him to focus on as the lead pastor? And by the way, it can't be growth. There were times in Jesus' ministry where everybody left him except the twelve. And Jesus was still successful. What are the biblical expectations for a pastor or elder team leading a house church in Syria? Or Pakistan, where there are 212 million Muslims? What is a proper ministry, ministry description for a lead pastor of a church that gathers at a great location inside a very nice facility in Centennial, Colorado. And my question is this, should it be any different? Yes, there are cultural differences. There are strengths, weaknesses. There are things about this culture where we're looking for a specific dynamic. But at the core, the biblical core, what we're looking for should be the same. We are looking for a shepherd leader. In light of that, Acts 20 is Paul, the closest thing we have to a missionary in the Bible. The word missionary is not used in the scripture. You have the apostle who is a sent one. He is sent with authority and he is now giving a charge to the elder pastor overseers of the church at Ephesus. He calls them. He's in Miletus. He calls them down from Ephesus. It's about 75 kilometers, and it's going to take about four days for the elders to come down and meet with Paul in the coastal town of Miletus. 
What does he say to them? By the way, farewell speeches are very important. Jacob gives one to his sons in Genesis 49 and 50. And he says, I am now old of age. And he gives sort of his farewell speech. Or Moses to Israel, Deuteronomy 31. Or Joshua in Joshua 23 to 24. Or Samuel in 1 Samuel 12. Jesus to his disciples in John 13 to 17. We're in, we're in chapter 14. He says, don't be afraid. Don't let your hearts be troubled. Jesus gave a farewell address to comfort and guide his own disciples. And then hear Paul to the elders. A good one sentence summary of Paul's farewell charge is given in verse 28. Look in verse 28. He says this to the elders as representative of the church or churches in Ephesus. And he says, be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has appointed you as overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. Verse 17, he calls for the elders. He tells them to shepherd. And then he says they're overseers. That's why we believe it refers to the same person or the same office, because those terms are used interchangeably throughout the New Testament. Notice first Paul's example, five descriptions are sort of going to fill out Paul's example. And this should be true of all pastors of Highlands Baptist Church. Yes, but especially of the lead pastor, as we're calling him in to sort of lead the team of elders. Look at verse 17, the example of a godly character. First of all, I'm going to read two verses, 17 and 18. And I want you to see that Paul identified with God's people. Now, from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus probably by way of a messenger, and called the elders of the church to come to him. When they came to him, he said to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia. You know, Paul did not avoid people. He didn't hide in a gated community. He didn't come out to preach a sermon and then hide for the next six days. He was with his people. He worked with his hands, even though he championed the fact that a laborer is worthy of his hire. He even said, you've seen how I've worked hard for my own needs. They knew also how he lived and he knew them. Do you know who Paul examples by doing so, by identifying with the people, by the fact that the people know him? I want you to turn back to John chapter 10. Jesus also identified with his people. Well, you're turning to chapter 10. I'm going to read a verse out of John chapter 1, verse 14. It says this, the word, Jesus, capital W, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. He tabernacled among us. He pitched his tent among us so we could behold him and see him and observe him. John says, and we have seen his glory Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus pitched His tent among the people so that they could know Him. He identified with them, not only by being among them, but by taking upon Himself human flesh. Look at what Jesus says in John chapter 10, verse 14. I am the good shepherd. I know my own. And my own know me. 
Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep. That is the heart of a shepherd. A mutual understanding of knowledge. Just before this, look at verse 12. Jesus warns of the nature of someone else who is not a shepherd, even though he's with the sheep. John 10, verse 12. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and he leaves the sheep and flees. Of course, the picture, you can fill in the blank, the shepherd, the guardian, the protector, leaves and the wolf just gets free access to the sheep. And what is the wolf going to do to the sheep? He is going to rip them apart on a killing spree. Why? Because they weren't protected by a shepherd They had a hired hand who did not own the sheep. When he sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them, Jesus says this, he flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. We need a lead shepherd, not a hired hand. We need someone who will take time to know the sheep, and learn the sheep, and spend life with the sheep. This is not only a problem in churches, the hired hand syndrome, but in cross-cultural work as well. It's merely a job or a career path or a decent gig or a salary. People are in ministry for a variety of reasons. Some good, some poor, some evil. Verse 12, the problem is, He does not own the sheep, therefore he does not care for the sheep. And it's a beautiful metaphor, one of Jesus' favorite metaphors. See, we can get an effective CEO. Those can be hired. Or an administrative guru, or a cowboy, or a rock star. And they might create a lot of energy and get things exciting around here. But the fact is, is he a shepherd who will care for the sheep? And if not... Jesus will not endorse that man to be over his church. You know, sheep with discernment can sense when a man is a true shepherd. You can discern when a man is a true shepherd. Jesus says in John 10, verse 4, The sheep follow him, for they know his voice. Something about his voice draws them to him. They're familiar with him because they have learned to trust his leadership. You know, it's not the same with a professional pastor. He can say everything right and then disappear for six days. And the sheep just aren't quite sure they're being shepherded and protected. Because verse 13, he cares nothing for the sheep. The good shepherd and a good shepherd owns the sheep. He has identity with the sheep and he cares for the sheep. How do you know the difference, by the way? Well, John 10, in five verses, is going to let you know the difference. Verse 11, verse 15, verse 17, verse 18. There's four verses, but in in one of those verses, it's mentioned twice. And Jesus is going to say this. This is the ultimate description of a shepherd. He lays down his life for the sheep. There is a sacrificial identity that a shepherd has with the sheep. Now turn back to Acts 20, verse 18. By the way, it's interesting, when Paul is there... In that coastal town of Miletus, he tells them, be careful. 
Because after my departure, what's the metaphor? Fierce wolves will come in and destroy you. You know, Paul not only identified with them, but he served with humility and passion. Look at Acts 20, verse 19. Serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. You know, when you read the letters of Paul or you read through the book of Acts, the narrative sections of the book of Acts, you can come away with a, with a wrong estimation of Paul as a very hardened, very curt, very man-centered person. Harsh. But he's not. Here you have this picture of, of him crying with these people and at the end of the passage you have people crying over him. It's, it's a beautiful picture of, of these people with a spiritual leader that they have grown to love. I will say this, in our, in our list of what we are looking for in the candidate, the next candidate to, be, to serve as the lead elder, lead pastor, lead overseer of this church, humility must mark that man. It actually needs to be a mark of all believers, but if he is, if he is up here before the flock, it should be one of those things that defines who the man is. You know why? Humble service in ministry is the result of a proper understanding of the gospel. When we understand that we don't deserve God's grace, when we apply that deeply, it humbles us. When I wake up this morning and I realize the kind of man I have been in the last week or the last month, it humbles me to realize God's grace extends all the way to me today just as it did the very day that he saved me. We don't deserve it. And that motivates us to serve with humility. Don't wrongly define humility. Quietness is not necessarily humility. A quiet man can be a smug, passive-aggressive man. Niceness is not humility. Gavin De Becker in his book, The Gift of Fear, states, Niceness is a decision it is a strategy of social interaction. It is not a character trait. I, I give you permission to distrust anyone whose smile stays on their face too long. When you read books about protecting your children from predators, that's one of the things they say to look for. It's this kind of jokerish, huh? And you're like, ooh, and it just stays there. And you're like, that's not genuine. No, it's not genuine. Niceness is not humility. First Peter 5, 5 says, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And we need God's grace in ministry. And Paul served with humility. There's something deep and genuine about a person who has suffered. Paul will say that in this passage. There's a depth of humility that only comes with living this life and all its experiences and disappointments and hurts and enduring by God's grace. Through, theirs, through those, there's, there's a depth of humility that is brought out through that suffering. It's probably why the qualifications of an overseer include this in 1 Timothy. He must not be a recent convert or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation 
of the devil. Paul not only identified with the people, he served with humility and passion, but look next, look at verse 20 and 21. He taught the gospel. We think that's just a given. There are a lot of ministries that are not proclaiming the gospel today, though they're doing a lot of good things. He says this in verse 20, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, possibly house churches, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. That was the emphasis of Paul's ministry, proclaiming, preaching, testifying, And the reason it was his emphasis is because he learned that from Jesus, where in Mark 1, 38 to 39, it says this. Jesus says, let us go on to the next towns that I may preach. For that is why I came out. And he went throughout all Galilee preaching in their synagogues. In the Great Commission, Jesus challenges his disciples, go into all the world and preach the gospel. Make disciples, teaching them to observe all things. That's the emphasis. So one of the questions we need to have is this. Is the pastoral candidate gifted in preaching and teaching? Not just administration, not just a good personality. Is he gifted specifically in that area? You see, all elders rule. They all are given authority. And all elders are supposed to be able to preach and teach. But there is a distinction made in 1 Timothy 5 where it says this, let the elders who rule well, right? So it's possible for an elder to not rule well. But let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor. The idea is remuneration or payment. Especially those, here's a distinction that Scripture makes between an elder team. All rule, some rule well, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. Does this candidate have a conspicuous gift in preaching and teaching? Paul's emphasis was on preaching and teaching, even though he spoke in tongues and performed miracles. He says that in 1 Corinthians. And yet his emphasis is on preaching and teaching. And teaching. See, methods can change because cultures change and ministry philosophies can be adapted upon the effectiveness of the gospel inside a culture. But the content of the gospel and the mode preaching must never change. That's why the Apostle Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy 4, preach the word. That's what he's supposed to do. A matter of fact, the verse before that, he says, I'm going to charge you in the sight of God. And at his appearing, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. And by the way, that doesn't just mean Saturday night, one of the elders gets a call. Hey, I'm sick. I need you to preach tomorrow, which nobody wants that phone call. That's certainly out of season, but I don't think that's exactly what Paul is getting at. What Paul is telling Timothy is this in season, out of season, you need to preach when they accept it or reject it. When it's safe when it's not safe, when it's popular and when it's not popular. You need to preach the word because he follows that and he says this, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. 
But the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Will the candidate give his life's strength to preaching and teaching because that is an emphasis in the New Testament? Paul not only identified with them, served with humility and passion, taught the gospel, but he also lived by the Spirit and treasured Jesus supremely. Look at verse 22 of Acts 20. And now, behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, verse 23, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself. If only I may finish my course and the ministry that I have received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Paul walked by the Spirit and he treasured Jesus supremely to the point where very much like Jesus, he sets himself towards Jerusalem, even in light of afflictions and imprisonment. It's interesting how walking in the Spirit, gospel proclamation, and suffering are all linked together. 2 Timothy 4.5, As for you, always be sober-minded. Endure suffering. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. And then Paul says this to the church at Philippi in Philippians 1.29, It has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in Him, but also suffer for His sake. Notice the connection of the Spirit and of Jesus in Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 2, 1-4. Paul says, And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come pro proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. He didn't have to be creative. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I want to sense that from the, net, from the pastoral candidate. I'm not here to be flashy. I'm not here to win you. I'm not here to be funny. I have decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Verse 3, and, and this is why they knew Paul. He said, I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my message were not implausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Paul walked by the Spirit and he treasured Jesus supremely. And finally, he served God with a clear conscience. Look at verse 25 to 27, Acts 20. And now, behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about, here's his emphasis again, proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring, that's, that's his ministry, a proclamation fulfilled, I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God, comprehensive teaching. Why is that so important? Well, when Jesus prays to his own father, he says in John 17, 17, sanctify them through your truth. Your word is truth. 
Paul, probably with two different passages of Ezekiel in his mind, says he is innocent of the blood of all his hearers. Ezekiel's prophecy is very interesting. As a matter of fact, he gives, God gives him this ministry and he says, I need you basically to go. And as a watchman on the wall, you need to protect the citizens. And if you see men with swords coming, you need to blow the trumpet. And if the people don't respond to the sound of the warning, that's on them. But if you see the danger and you don't blow the trumpet, their blood is on you. That's transferred now over into ministry where we see people dying in Muslim and Buddhist countries and no one is sounding a trumpet. In that sense, we have a responsibility of those people's blood. If we do go and blow the trumpet of warning, which is actually a good news message, and they don't respond, their blood is no longer on our hands. But the joy and the promise is that some will respond and believe in Jesus Christ. Pastors of Highlands, especially the lead pastor of preaching and teaching, ought to faithfully blow the trumpet of God's word for all to hear. The wages of sin is death. There is no one righteous, no, not one. And after this, the judgment. That's sounding a warning. Now, after looking back, Paul looking at his example among them, telling them goodbye, I want you to just see quickly his exhortation to the elders. Look at verse 28. He tells the elders, and this would be a totally independent sermon, but he says this, pay careful attention to yourselves. Or as he tells Timothy in 1 Timothy 4.16, keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Interesting to focus again on that instructional ministry. This is simply the minister's self-watch. Watch yourselves. But look at verse 28. He also says this, watch the flock. Pay careful attention to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God. Why? Well, Jesus obtained it with his own blood. The price has been paid. Redemption has been secured. Now I'm leaving you in charge to care for the church. I want to look at the three words that basically Acts 17 and, and, and verse 28 use. He says to care for the church. That word is actually poimino, and it means to tend as a shepherd, to feed, rule, or nurture. It comes out of the fields. In Jewish metaphorical usage, it carries the idea of authority. A shepherd, it's both a noun and a verb, a shepherd shepherds sheep. It describes the man's work. First Peter 5, verse 2, shepherd the flock of God. Well, what's the incentive? Verse 4, and when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. This describes what a man does. The term elder springs out of the synagogue and out of the village. It was a little confusing when we first went to Africa and we went up country and they were calling these men who were clearly animists in their belief system. They were calling them elders. All that simply meant was they were aged and experienced and they were ruling over that village. Elder springs from 
the Jewish context from the synagogue and the village, the Greek word is presbyteros. It's used nearly 20 times and it refers to a 20 times. It refers to a unique group of leaders in the church. The term elder suggests age, maturity and wisdom. And again, that's why in the qualifications it says not a recent convert. The third word overseer recognizes the responsibility of authority and management. And remember, think about a candidate being presented to us. If he's all about books and blogs and travel and he doesn't smell like sheep, no culture would ever call him a shepherd. You want him to have age and experience and a maturity, hopefully a sense of humor. But but we need age and maturity and experience even before that. That's elder. Overseer is authority. The word translated steward in Titus 1, 5, it says, Appoint elders in every town as I directed you for an overseer, elder, for an overseer as God's steward. The word steward, uh, we get our word economy from this Greek word oikonomos. It means literally household manager. And it's interesting that in the qualifications in 1 Timothy 3, it says that he must rule his own house well. Because if he doesn't, how do you expect to take that smaller microcosm of management and extend it to a larger flock and he'll rule this well? And, and the clear answer is he won't. He can't. Great picture of this, of this steward is in Genesis 39. It says, so Joseph found favor in his sight and attended him and he made him overseer, Potiphar, made him overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had, all Everything but one thing, right? Mrs. Potiphar. But everything else he was able to manage and rule over. From the time that he made him overseer in his house and over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was in all that he had in house and field. So he left all that he had in Joseph's charge. That is what it looks like. There are other servants in the household. Joseph is a servant over the other servants. That's what an overseer is. Jesus used the imagery in the Olivet Discourse when he taught about living in light of his second coming, living in light of his return. In Matthew 24, 45, he says this, who then is the faithful and wise servant whom his master has set over overseer his household to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he returns. Truly, I say to you, Jesus said, he will set him over all his possessions. Basically, all men were responsible to Jesus directly or the household owner until he chose an overseer. They're still now responsible to the master, but now through representation of another servant. They are under the master's authority through representation. Do you know that's true of the church? The Holy Spirit places some as overseers, elders, pastors, and they are responsible to God for you and you are responsible to God. But through their representation, it doesn't remove a congregational ruling. But what it does do is it places authority in this church for God's glory. When we affirm a lead pastor, we are affirming someone who will oversee us, who will lead this church, which is true of the entire elder team. 
First Peter five, one to four says this. So I exhort the elders, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight. Let's read the rest of the passage and we're done. Look at verse thirty three. Paul's already said goodbye. He now leaves them with another example. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. Though I did compliment somebody's shoes this morning, I wasn't coveting them, okay? Just for the record. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. In all these things, I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus. How he himself said, it is more blessed to give to more blessed to give than to receive. Is the man free of material attraction and the deception of stuff? Is he a hired hand or does he care for the sheep? And the answer is observe his life and talk to those who know him well. Let me make it very clear. If he cozies up to the rich young ruler but despises blind Bartimaeus, he's not like Jesus. He's not a shepherd. Peter says to the elders, shepherd, exercise oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Look at verse 36 to 38, the sweetest picture to me of the whole text. When he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken, that they would not see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. I'm going to invite the music team forward. And I'm going to condense this down from this text to the things we are looking for in a candidate based upon the elders' recommendation today We are looking for these things. Number one, a man who identifies with the sheep. Shepherding ownership, not a hired hand or driven by salary. Two, a man who serves with humility and passion. Three, a man who proclaims the gospel clearly, comprehensively and regularly. Four, a man who walks by the spirit and treasures Jesus supremely. See, it's one thing to love the ministry of the Lord, and it's an entirely different thing to love the Lord of the ministry. Number five, a man who serves God and others with a clear conscience. Number six, a man who keeps a close watch on himself and on the flock he oversees. Number seven, a man who will feed and protect this flock, a work that is done primarily through preaching and teaching, and he guards against the wolves and he stays Sacrificing his own life. Number eight, a man who is a godly leader, overseer, manager. Nine, a man who is spiritually mature, an elder. Number ten, a man who avoids greed, works hard, and practices generosity. And finally, eleven, a man who loves the flock. They cried over him. He cries over them. A man who loves the flock and is loved by the flock in return. Final passage. 1 Thessalonians 5, 12 to 13. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and Highlands 
It doesn't say that in in 1 Thessalonians. I'm adding that. To esteem them who, the elders, overseers, shepherds, to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Not because they're better or more important or even more gifted, but because the Holy Spirit has placed them as overseers in this, among this flock. And then he ends with this, right? To esteem them very highly in love because of their work, be at peace among yourselves. 